Bible reading tonight is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Isaiah chapter 7. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear-Jasheb, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of their fierce anger of because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Remalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tobiel king over it. Yet This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give, a birth, and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste." The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we come to your word tonight, that you would help me to be clear speak clearly so that those of us who are coming to this book for the first time might have insight into how this book helps us to understand who you are and who we are. Help us, Lord, for those of us that have uh, been reading Isaiah for longer, that we might find new insight into you this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've begun this series, a few people have asked me, Uh, Why do we read a book in the Old Testament? What application does this story tonight have to us? 
how is all these uh, political machinations that are taking place 740 BC apply to me today? Well, just a couple of comments that I'd like to share before we dive into chapter 7 of uh, the book tonight. When you look at the Bible, you see 66 books. There are 39 books in the Old Testament and there are 27 books in the New Testament. Often Christians tend to read the New Testament more than the Old Testament because it seems to apply to us a lot easier, doesn't it? It's about Jesus, it's about being a Christian, it gives us heaps of uh, really good teaching on how we can live as Christians and grow. But sometimes the Old Testament can seem a little bit uh, harder to understand. Like I said, 740 BC was a long time ago in the time of Isaiah. Well, if you read the book of Isaiah as a standalone book, it can seem a little bit hard to understand its application for today. But the way I look at the Bible is that even though there are 66 books in it, those 66 books are part of one story. This is the story of God and it's the story of us. And when you read the 66 books of the Bible, sometimes it's good to think of it as one great big story, one great big book. And in that way, the different books in the Bible are more like chapters in our story rather than separate books that are all side by side in the same collection. And when you read Isaiah that way, it comes alive because Isaiah is a chapter in the story of God and us and it's part of the great story of how God is saving a people for himself. If there was a theme of the Bible, I think you could possibly say that the theme is that we are sinners and we need a saviour. That while God made human beings to be his friends, we rebelled against him. And the story in the Bible is a rescue mission of how God has won us back for himself. And that's the story that plays out through the whole of the Bible. And when we come to Isaiah, you see, Isaiah actually has a special part of that story because Isaiah is actually giving us a fulcrum as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And as you look at Isaiah, it actually helps you to understand where the people of Israel have come after they were chosen by God to be his people, that after they failed to live for God, God was not going to break his promise to their ancestor Abraham, who he said through him would be blessing to all the nations. And so what we see in Isaiah is Isaiah is making sense of all this mess that he finds himself in, where the people of Israel are not living for God. And so the message of Isaiah has two focuses. One is judgment on the people of Israel who have rebelled against God, but also mercy and hope for those who turn to God. You see, as Ethan was saying earlier, God is a gracious God. And he's not the God of second chances. He's the God of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. It's amazing that the message of judgment and the message of hope in Isaiah comes across so clearly. Now, if you look at the structure of Isaiah, you see these messages of judgment and hope side by side. In fact, in the 30, uh, chapters 1 to 39 in Isaiah, we see the message of judgment. Although even in that message, there is going to be all these pointers to hope. And in the second half of the book, we actually pick up in chapters 40 to 66, this amazing revelation in Isaiah that for the first time, God is giving his people more clarity on how he is going to save them despite their rebellion. You see, God is going to hold for himself a remnant within Israel of the people who are faithful. And through that faithful people will come the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's why Isaiah is so quoted in the New Testament. I said earlier that often as Christians we read the New Testament more than we read the Old Testament, but if you are ploughing through the New Testament over and over, do you you ever think about the fact that you're actually reading the Old Testament over and over? Because the New Testament authors keep referring back to other books in the Bible to help explain how wonderful Jesus is. And when you look back, so many of those references are out of Isaiah. So when we come to look at this chapter, this chapter is a section of the story that we love and hold so dearly to as Christians. In the story so far in Isaiah, chapters 1 to 12 that we're in at the moment are actually a section in and of themselves. And chapters 1 to 12 are particularly looking at Jerusalem and the judgment that is going to befall the people of Jerusalem. It's like this old old Jerusalem versus a new Jerusalem kind of paradigm we're going to have. The judgment on the old rebelliousness and the hope of the new. And that's what we're going to see in chapters 1 to 12. So at chapter 7, we're right in the middle of this story in this little section. Now, last week we heard of how God called Isaiah to be his prophet. Isaiah um, has a vision of God and when he sees God on the throne, he's struck by the awesome beauty of God's holiness. It's a wonderful picture for us to consider just how beautiful God is. Do you know, God is the only one who has never sinned and as a result, he is beautiful. Because if you think of the most beautiful person that you can think of, maybe even sitting in this room tonight, Even the most beautiful people we meet in our lives are corrupted by sin. But yet God is beautiful without corruption. And when Isaiah sees him sitting on the throne, his holiness is not only gorgeous and beautiful, but it's terrifying and awe-inspiring. Because as, as Isaiah looks at God, he reflects on himself as a fallen human being. And he he despairs. How can an unclean man come into a man of unclean lips, he says. Remember that from last week? A man of unclean lips come before the holy God. And so a coal is taken from the fire and an angel pokes a coal, seraph puts a coal on Isaiah's lips, not to destroy him, but because of his repentance to, to, to clean him, to cleanse him. And he's left there stunned at this wonderful act of grace by God. And then God says, who is going to go to Israel to tell them that they face judgment and they need to repent? And he puts his hand up and he says, I will go, Lord God. He goes to Israel. But the problem for Israel is that their hearts have already hardened. They're not like Isaiah. They're not repentant. They actually love the wickedness that they're indulging in. They have the reverse reaction to the holiness of God of Isaiah because rather than being drawn to God, they are repelled by him and they want to run the world the way they want to. And because of their hard hearts, God gives um, Isaiah this, this image of this tree and this tree has been chopped down and all that's left is a stump. And in fact, if the chopping down of the tree is not enough, the tree just gets hacked down and then it gets set on fire. All that's left is a stump. But even as the stump remains, you see the judgment of God on that tree, but you also see the hope that, oh, I wonder if a sprout, a branch might pop out of that smouldering stump one day. Could a seed survive from that stump? And at the end of chapter 6, we're left wondering of that question. 
even though God is going to judge Israel, could something grow out of that that actually could come to pass that something even more beautiful than that tree might grow? Could the destruction and the judgment on Israel create a situation where something even more beautiful is born? And as we're left hanging in chapter 6, we're like any good story, where there's a cliffhanger in the end of chapter 6, a page turner. And the next chapter, chapter 7, is going to give us the answer to that question. What is going to come from the stump? I hope you've got your Bibles open as we travel through this because it's a really exciting read. It's good to also always have your Bibles open or look at the verses behind me on the screen as I preach. But we're going to look at chapter 7 today because chapter 7 to 12 is going to give us the answer to this this seed, this hope. What is the hope? Who is the hope that's going to come? Well, in chapter 7, Isaiah goes to the king, Ahaz. Now, I read over that really quickly often when I read that kind of thing in Scripture. Oh, okay, so the prophet goes up to the king. That's cool. But something happened this week for me that actually got me to stop and think about just how brave Isaiah was to speak to this king. You see, every now and again, I get um, an opportunity to go to particular things in the Shire. Um, There was a a leadership gathering in the Shire on... um, Anything wrong, Anth? You guys got something true? You got the Bible open? You're right, cool. Um, yeah, um, on Thursday, sorry, I just saw the Eliards checking on something. I was just making sure they were okay. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, every now and again, um, as a minister, I get an opportunity to go to events every now and again. And I got asked to an event on Thursday night. And apparently at this event, what we were going to do is gather together with some business leaders in the Shire and the Prime Minister was going to come to this event and give an update on the budget. Sounded riveting, but I thought I'll go along because uh, my good friend asked me to go and, and it actually turned out to be a great night, actually. It's not that um, a budget uh, explanation is a page-turner in my life, but I still think it's important, but uh, I went along. And I was actually at this function talking to my friend and another person and then behind me I heard some people moving towards me and then uh, everyone turned around and there was the Prime Minister right in front of me. And Scott Morrison put his hand out to shake my hand. He said, hi. And I said, oh, g'day, Scott. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that was a bit of a dumb thing to say. And everybody else said, oh, hello, Prime Minister, hello, Prime Minister. And I was feeling terrible. I'm like, but he didn't bat an eyelid. He just shook my hand and, hi. And I said, oh, I'm Stuart. He said, oh, hi, Stuart, I'm Scott. And I'm, yep, seen you before on TV. <laughs> and I had nothing. I stood there. Cool. Stood there for a bit more. And I think he was waiting for me to say something or ask a question and I'm just standing there waiting for him to say something or ask a question and it was a little bit awkward and then one of my friends jumped in in the awkwardness and talked about the budget and I thought, terrific, we're in in the black or the red or something. And then he walked on and I was like, oh, okay, that was different. But what we have here in chapter 7 is very different to that altogether. You see, Ahaz is outside the city gates looking at the aqueduct, he's the king. He's probably looking at the aqueduct so that he can just sort of make sure that the water supply for the city is going to be okay because they're under a bit of threat. A lot of fear going around because of what's going on to their north. There's threatening armies gathering in the north, you see. And so Ahaz is out by the aqueduct checking it out. And unlike me, when Isaiah meets Ahaz, it's not because Ahaz has come up to him. Isaiah goes and seeks Ahaz out, the king of Israel. And Isaiah goes up to the king because he's not going to just shake his hand and exchange pleasantries and then have an awkward silence. 
Isaiah has a word from the almighty king of the universe to give to this king. And he confidently goes up to the king and he has this conversation with him. He confronts Ahaz, king of Jerusalem. Even though Ahaz is in the line of David, he is actually not living out his role as he should. Now, let me unpack a little bit what's going on here in the situation. At the time of Isaiah in 740 BC, Assyria is rising. They're a rising power and they're terrifying. They're a brutal people and they devastate every land that they conquer and they are rising. And in chapter 7, there's this sort of trembling that you see amongst the people. They're scared of destruction. The prophecy of Isaiah of the tree being cut down looks like it actually could come to pass. Because it looks like Assyria could be the axe that takes this tree down, the mighty people of God down. But what we're going to see is that in the midst of the judgment that is going to befall the people of Israel, because there will be judgment, there is actually going to be a lifeline that is thrown to the people. So while Isaiah is going to speak to Ahaz of the coming wrath, He's also coming to talk to him about the coming hope, which is just as real, just as tangible, and is actually going to come to pass to all those who trust in the Lord God. Have a look with me down at verse 14 of chapter 7. This is the hope, this is the sign, and this is probably the key verse in this section. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, this much-loved verse of Christians all over the world, even Christians who don't read the Old Testament very much, know this verse. You've probably heard it before. If you haven't, it is one of the most beautiful predictors of the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is declaring this prophecy in this section. There will come one who will be called Emmanuel, and he will be conceived and given birth through a virgin. It's Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? I get excited just thinking about this. 740 years before Jesus was born, this prophecy that he was coming in such detail. You see the detail starting to increase, isn't it? In Isaiah, you see the hope growing, the clarity of how God is going to save us growing. That's why it's good to read the Old Testament because you can start reading it as a story and you can start getting excited about what's going to happen. But this hope is in the midst of fear. By 734 BC, Assyria, the world's superpower, is looking to take over not only Judah, but Syria and Israel. Now, I've got a little map that we, we can look at. I don't know if you can find it there for me, brother, but you probably can't see it, actually. I don't know if you can see it on TV either, but I'm going to speak to it anyway. Basically, on this map, you get uh, the kingdom of Judah with a little star where Jerusalem is. That's in the, the capital of Judah. And then you've got the kingdom of Israel to the north, and you've got all these other kingdoms around, but you also have right up the top there, you've got Syria, and then off to the right you have the Assyrian Empire. Now, the 12 tribes of Judah have broken apart, as we heard last week, and Judah has continued to be worshipping God in Jerusalem. However, the rest of the tribes of Israel have actually started building a, a separate capital called Samaria. And, and what's happened is that the, 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 the people of Israel 
to the north have formed an alliance with Syria, not Assyria. Now, this gets a little bit complicated, but let me just explain. There is Assyria, which is the big evil empire, and Syria, which is a country, which is small. Similar names, but they're not, not got anything to do with each other. Well, what's happening is Syria and the northern tribes are talking to Judah about forming an alliance so that together all three of them can stand up against Assyria. And there's a great deal of fear. Now, Ahaz, the king of Judah, has a quandary. Should he align himself with Syria and Israel against Assyria, or should he go on the side of Assyria, or should he do something different? And basically what happens is the prophet comes to him and says, you shouldn't go on anybody's side. You should trust in the word of God. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, you get a description of how the two northern countries, Israel and Syria, actually then decide to attack Judah. So now Judah's got even more problems. Now they're being attacked by Syria and the northern tribes and they're in a great deal of trouble. In verse 2, now the house of David was told, Aram has aligned itself with Ephraim. So Aram is a, a name referring to Syria and Ephraim is referring to the tribes of Israel. So that the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of a forest are shaken by the wind. See the poignance there. We've already had that prophecy of a tree being cut down. Now we're seeing these trees shaking in fear because the axe is coming. But it's not just one axe. Now there's axemen coming from everywhere. We've got these two armies coming down from the north and we've got the Assyrians from the other side. And Isaiah doesn't tremble with fear. He goes to the king and he says, you need to trust in the Lord, Ahaz. You need to go back to the Lord and ask him to protect you. But in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 to 4, we read that Ahaz did not listen to the prophet. Verse 2 of 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of the nations of the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifice and burnt incense at the high places and on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. So this guy is a man of his time. He's actually a worldly guy who's actually decided he wants to live like all the people around him and not be different to them, even to the extent that he's willing to sacrifice his own son to pagan gods to fit in. This is the kind of guy he is. And Isaiah, though, comes to him with an alternative. He comes to Ahaz and he says, you don't actually have to do this. You can actually still trust in God. And in chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, this is what we read. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, the attack of Assyria on Judah. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim too will be shattered to be a people. Basically what God's saying there through Isaiah is, these two great nations are only led by two people, two guys. And two men are not as powerful as the great God of heaven. You do not have to fear a king who's just a person. 
when the king of heaven has said he will be on your side. Remember that name for Jesus, Emmanuel, that prophecy in verse 14. Emmanuel means God is with us. Isn't that wonderful? So why would you go anywhere else if God is with you? Well, Isaiah says, trust in the word of God. But in verses 10 to 11, Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to trust in God. Have a look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Basically, he's given Ahaz an opportunity to say, ask for a sign from God to prove that this is true. How gracious is God that he's even willing to give this rebellious king an opportunity to ask for his own sign? Ask for a sign that the, you know, the, the, the KFC sign turns into a McDonald's sign on Monday night for three hours and then when you drive past it and see a McDonald's sign where a KFC sign should be, then you'll know only God could have done that because that wouldn't have happened. You'd think Ahaz would go, okay, I'll, all right, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. I'll ask for a sign and if the sign comes true, I'll know that God actually is looking after us and he wants me to trust him. But Ahaz says no. Remember what I said earlier. Their hearts had become so hardened that he even ignores that opportunity to have a sign. Yet still Ahaz has four more ways to trust in God in this passage and he neglects each one of them. Let's have a look at them quickly. Chapter 7 verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remiel. Basically, these two kingdoms to the north that you guys are scared of, the people of Israel who are formed up with Syria to attack you, they're just like two smouldering sticks. Even children play with sticks in the fire and their parents tell them to throw them back in the fire. Kids aren't scared of sticks that are smouldering. Why would you be scared of a smouldering gum tree twig? That's not scary. Ahaz, they're just smouldering sticks, man. You don't have to be scared of them. That's the first thing. Yet he ignores it. And then he goes on to say again in verse 7 that these two coalitions are just led by two powerful men, but they're just men. And then in 10 to 13, verses 10 to 13, God offers that sign, as we said. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, this is what we read. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, it is not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of God as well? He says to Ahaz, Mate, aren't you listening? God is offering you a lifeline away from these scary political situations that you're under, but you're not listening. And because Ahaz rejected the sign of God, God says, well, I'll give you a sign anyway. But because you haven't asked me for a sign, I'll give you a sign that you're not going to like very much. And this is where we come to verse 14. You see, the sign of the coming of the Emmanuel is preceded by devastation. The sign that we're going to see is a sign of judgment and of hope. Have a look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. There it is. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then if you go down to verse 17, though, you'll see what has to happen before that. Verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and on your people, on the house of your father, a time unlike anything since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, now the Lord's getting down to business. He's saying, look, I will defend you if you come to me. 
the two kingdoms that you fear above you, you're out there checking your water duct to make sure the water supply is going to be all right for the city if there's a siege. You're scared of Israel and Syria. Tell you what, what's going to happen? Something even worse. Even worse than just this great empire of Syria because Assyria is going to come down and bring waste to Syria and Israel. They're going to be smashed. Nothing will be left. And then they're going to attack you. And this is what ended up happening. Before the birth of Jesus, all these events had to take place first. Before the hope came the judgment. Israel and Damascus would be destroyed by Assyria in 732. And by 722 AD, Syria was completely destroyed. Judah will be all but be destroyed by another empire, Babylon, who will come in in 701. And we know from Isaiah 36 to 37, if we look up, that unlike Ahaz, later there would be a king called Hezekiah who would put his trust in the Lord, unlike Ahaz, but that would still result on only a 150-year reprieve because the Syrians and the Israelites will be completely destroyed. Israel will be... Sorry, the Assyrians will attack Judah and even though... 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed in one night. The Babylonians will come and they will actually take the people of Israel into captivity. What is being spoken about here that Ahaz is ignoring is something that we can't ignore in our time. Because what we see is that the holy God that impressed Isaiah so much is one that we can all we can either be drawn to or one that we can either flee from but if we flee there is nowhere to flee from his presence and if we consider that we can rely on ourselves and our human wisdom to look after ourselves then we'll be greatly mistaken on thursday night there was a question time where a number of business leaders were asking the prime minister a number of questions and they were asking specific questions about inflation and fiscal policy and monetary policy But then someone asked a question that pricked my ears up. Someone asked Scott Morrison, what are you going to do about China? And Scott sort of went, oh, uh, I like China. I like the Chinese government. I I just wish they'd, you know, we could get on better. And I just thought, isn't that interesting that I'm preparing a sermon on Saturday night about who is Ahaz going to look for protection from when he's in strife politically when he has great powers that are moving around to his north looking to come down to his country and here in Australia in 2021 we have a rising China and maybe some people say a declining USA we have shifting power balances in our world And there's so much debate in our media about who we should trust. But there's very little call in our country to rely on the word of the Lord and to go back to God for our ultimate security. I heard a sermon one time by a man called John Piper who was preaching about 10 years ago. And he was preaching to his people in his parish in America And he was saying, you know the problem with us in America? He said, the problem with us is we rely too much on our military. And we think that we'll be safe and we can go about our daily lives forever because we have a strong military. 
But 10 years ago, John Piper said, you know, one day our military is not going to save us. And what we are going to need to remember is who do we put our trust in, in our government or in the Lord God? Well, 10 years later, it's seeming like what John Piper talked about all those years ago is starting to come to pass. Because even America doesn't seem to be able to stop another government building up its armed forces in South China Sea. It reminds me that we should be reading the whole of our Bible, shouldn't we? And we should be reading it as one big story. Because we need to understand that when God's people are in times of trouble and times of unrest, we should look to the Lord God for our protection. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, this is what it says. Concerning this salvation, the prophet spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently with great and greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances with which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels look into these things. Basically, Peter is saying, when Isaiah was talking about the situation in his time, about calling Ahaz to look to God instead of the north, as Assyria, for, for hope, the Holy Spirit was giving him a message that was for us in our day. That's exactly what Peter's saying here that as they intently looked into what do all these things mean, what does it, Emmanuel mean, being born of a virgin? Now we look back on that prophecy and we go, ah, oh, right, that's God's plan. Now here's the thing for us to remember today. If, I, if Isaiah trusted in God's word for protection and he didn't even know exactly how that word would come to pass, how much more should we trust in God's word because we know it has come to pass? So my encouragement to us tonight is that in our anxieties and our worries, let's go to the Lord. Let's talk to him and let's consider him and let's trust in him because he is great. There is no guarantee for Australia's political security into the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But the hope that was put down in Isaiah that one day there'll be a new Jerusalem and that all of us have access to that if we put our faith in this Emmanuel and trust in the God who was with us. We know, don't we, that Jesus came to earth and was born of a virgin and died on a cross for our sins so that we don't have to face the judgment that Israel went through. We escape the judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's be like Isaiah and go near to God rather than be like Israel and Judah who are entrenched in their hard hearts. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful message tonight. And we ask, Lord God, that you would enrich us and deepen our faith as we go through Isaiah this term. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey.